Last week, we started by getting to know this really significantly important Old Testament character named, three were here, named Moses, yes. And uh, this week, we learn uh, a whole lot more about him and the story and kind of what kick-starts his ministry. Um, And to me, as someone growing up in church, I have heard a lot I mean a lot of trying to be funny sermon titles. You guys ever heard those? Yeah, trying to be funny, they just, they just fail. Well, this one today, I'm bar- the preview title is, I think, one of my favorites. It's, Here I Am, Lord, Send Aaron. Right? Because I just don't want to go. I don't want to go do what you want me to do. So, we're in Exodus chapter 3, and uh, we'll get started. Verse 1, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Now, if you remember from last week, Moses is born, and then Moses kills a guy, right? And he runs off into the desert. Now, how old is he when he kills the guy? Anybody remember from last week? He's 40 years old. How old is he here at this point in the story? He's 80 years old. Now, think about it. As we get older in life, what do we expect? relative to our belongings and our possessions. It grows over time, right? That's just kind of what we expect. Where is Moses? He's empty-handed on somebody else's land managing somebody else's sheep at 80. This is the background. This is the stuff that we miss sometimes. He's 80 years old, and he doesn't have anything to his own name. And guess what? God's okay with that. He's okay with that. Because your possessions do not dictate your ministry. And I am so thankful of that. Amen? All right. So, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Jethro, just awesome name, right? The priest of Midian. And he led the flock back to the back of the desert and came to Horeb. Some of you may have a little note in your Bibles. This is also Mount Sinai later on in the Scriptures. The mountain of God. And the... Angel of the Lord. How many of you have a capital A for angel in your Bibles? Anybody want to take a guess on why you have a capital A on the angel for your Bibles? Because that's not just a regular old angel. Okay? It's really, it's really probably not an angel at all. It's really a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And some of you are going, what? That's crazy. Yeah, it kind of is. It really is. And if you do an exhaustive study on angels, you will come to the conclusion that when the angel of the, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, shows up, this is not a regular angel. It's the only angel in the Old Testament that accepted worship. Now, you think God's going to be okay with an angel accepting worship? No, no. It's going to get de-winged very quickly. Okay? You have a real problem here. This is Jesus. And if you go back in the, in the Old Testament and you look at the way that this angel of the Lord interacts with people, it looks exactly like Jesus in the New Testament. It is uncanny, kind of because it is. So I want to make sure we, we cover that very quickly. So a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, really fancy words, just means Jesus showed up in the Old Testament, appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush, literally a thorny bush. So he looked, and behold... The bush was burning with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, talking to himself, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. And we've all experienced this, right? We've seen something, and you're like, whoa, what, what, what was that? 
I didn't, what was going on with that? That's a little bit different. And we talk to ourselves, and every once in a while, we get to see somebody talking to themselves. And you've seen this at your work, right? Or maybe your kids, you've seen them talking to themselves, and they're just having a conversation, it's a great conversation, and then you see them, and it's like, oh, sorry about that. It became awkward all of a sudden. So Moses is talking to himself. Now here's the interesting thing. Who's writing this story? Moses is writing this story. So Moses is having to put down, yeah, this is the day I was talking to myself, right? To me, which is a bit awkward, but that's where we are. Verse 4. So when the Lord, see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, this is Jehovah, Yahweh, Yod, He, Vav, He, the unutterable, ineffable name for God. When the Lord saw that he took, that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And remember, I've told you time and time again, when you see God saying someone's name twice, something big is about to happen. And Moses said, here I am, which is a pretty good response, right? Because he didn't know what was coming next. Verse 5, then he said, do not draw near to this place. Take off your sandals, off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And God's just making the point that wherever I am physically on the earth, when I decide to show up in a physical form, that becomes a holy place. Verse 6, moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Should I go there? I think I will. If I'm Moses, I hid my face, and I'm very thankful that the Holy Spirit didn't make me right, and I probably also wet myself just a little bit. <laughs> because a bush that is burning, and an angel that is talking, and God is speaking, and I'm out here in the middle of the desert with a bunch of sheep, and I got no shoes on my feet, and this is just weird. Okay? And if you don't think that God will talk to you in some weird, strange places, you ain't been listening long enough. Because he will talk to us in strange places when we are not expecting it. And he will speak, and it's a beautiful thing. Verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression, the affliction, the poverty, the misery of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. You go, what? What do you mean God knows their sorrows? Yeah, he, he knows about their sorrows, right? Is that what he means? I don't know. I think it might be a little more than that. I think he knows their pain. He knows the pain of being rejected and having somebody totally turn their back on him, right? Because God's already, this is post-flood era, right? God's already wiped the earth clean, and this is version 2.0 of the Matrix, right? We've rebooted and we're going full steam ahead. And they're still turning their back on him. Oh, so, so there's quite a few visitors in the room today. If you haven't seen the Star Wars films, the Star Trek films, all the Matrix films, everything by Quentin Tarantino, who else? That'll get you started for the references that I, it's kind of, you just have to get used to it. Sorry. Verse 8. So I have come down, this is God, in visible form to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing or gushing with milk and honey. And look at your picture here. To the place of the Canaanites. This is on the west side of the Jordan. 
And the Hittites, these are people who lived in southern Canaan. And the Amorites, these are the people who lived in eastern Canaan. And the Perizzites, the people who lived in southwestern Canaan. And the Hivites, the people who lived in northern Canaan. And the Jebusites, the people who lived in central Canaan. See, for us, it's just, it's all these ites, and we go, ah, okay, whatever, you know. Skip through the names, right? Skip through the names and skip through the countries, no big deal. God is mapping out where Israel is going to live. And Moses is smack dab in the center of all of this. So here's the equivalent. God shows up to you, and he says, you know what? I'm going to give you Kentucky and North Carolina and South Carolina and Florida and Georgia and Alabama, because I don't want it, and (laughs) Mississippi and Arkansas, and I'm missing somebody. Missouri, thank you. Right? All around, that's going to be yours. And you're sitting there going, really? Because that's a lot of land, God. Yeah, it is. It's all around where he was. This is his perspective. Verse 9, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression or the distress with which the Egyptians oppress or squeeze them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. If you remember last week, what was the last thing that Pharaoh wanted to do to Moses? To kill him. He wanted to kill Moses. So not only am I going to give you all this land around where you are, I'm going to send you back to the one guy who actually has the authority to pull off what he wants to do. And he's trying to kill you. Awesome. Fantastic. Sign me up right now, right? No. Let me run away right now. That's what I'm thinking. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So we're going to go through five objections that Moses has to this conversation with God. His first question is, Who am I? Who am I? Which I think that's a fairly legitimate question. I think we're okay at this point, right? Because who am I to go stand up in front of the king of Egypt and say, You're going to go do something? Okay. See what God says. So God said, I will certainly be with you, period. Now, God could have stopped right there, and Moses would have been okay with whatever happened. Because God, the Lord of all creation, the one who spoke everything into existence, the one who has already set into motion the plan of redemption that's going to result in Jesus Christ coming, the one that flooded the entire world and then fixed it all, that one is going to be with him. And at that point, Moses should have, had he been a good Sunday school student, bowed up and said, yes, sir, God, I'm here. Which direction are we going? Right? But what does he do? God doesn't stop there because God knows Moses. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And I read that and I go, well, whoop de doo because that's afterward. I don't want to sign afterward. I want to sign right now. You know why I want to sign right now? Because I'm a wicked and perverse generation, like Jesus said in Matthew. Because I need a sign before I know I'm going to go. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, What is his name? What shall I say to them? So his first question was, who am I? And his second question is, who are you? Because they're going to want a name. Because Egypt, Egypt's 
theological persuasion is a whole bunch of gods all over the place. And the Israelite theological persuasion is there is one God and one Lord. One. That's it. So what's his name? Yes, go ahead. Please. Jethro. Uh, causing the priest of Midian, Jethro later gives Moses some exceptionally good advice. I would say he's probably doing the right thing. Um, best guess. The Bible doesn't go into a lot of history on Jethro, mainly because he's not that significant a Bible character. Um, but he does give Moses some good advice later on. The Bible calls him twice the priest of Midian. So he's probably doing the right thing. There were pockets of people who were serving God in the Israelite uh, country. Country is the wrong word. In the Israelite, what's the word I'm looking for? Family. Um, so community. Thank you. That's a better word. Does that help? Yes, fire away. For those of you that are new, questions are good. Right? The law has not been given. I love that question. I love that question. Most of us, most of us read the Bible and we assume before the law that God hadn't given any direction on how he wanted to do things. God had given plenty of direction on how he wanted to do things. The law just codified it. It wrote it all down and provided some structure around it. There were priests, there were offerings, there were those who served God, there were places of worship, there were all these things that existed before the law. The law just gave it some structure. Awesome, awesome question. Anybody else? Two that I knew. (laughs) It is a bit intimidating sometimes because you guys are really freaking smart to go, you got a question about the Bible that maybe I can hopefully make a shot at? All right, and God says to Moses, I am who I am. So I went back in the Hebrew and looked this up. Best modern translation is I be who I be. (laughs) It's I be who I be. And I just, I was like, I can't say that. And Julie said, don't say that, but I did anyway. (laughs) The verb here is all about the existence. It's not about the activity. It's about the existence. So at any point in the existence of anything, God has always been. That's as close as I can do. I think we understand this concept, right? He had no beginning. He had no end. He, he, he created time, so he can do whatever he wants to do with time. That's easy. Stepping in and stepping out, that's no problem. So I am who I am. And God said, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this is a phrase that the children of Israel would have gone, oh, okay, we've clearly identified who we're talking about here. This is not Ra, the sun god of the Egyptians. This is somebody else. This is our God has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. You see this phrase again? It's the third time in this story, right? appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and have seen what, you have, what Egypt has done to you. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. And then what happens in verses 18 through 22, God gives Moses a summary of the rest of the story of the Exodus. So he tells him exactly what's going to happen from here on out. 
which is kind of cool, right? Because what if we all, you know, here's the proverbial question, right? If you got three wishes, what would you wish for? And somebody goes, I'd wish for a million wishes. No, 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 okay, whatever. One of my wishes, the theoretical wish, was always to know the day I was going to die. Always. Because I just want to know. I'm about knowing things, right? The fact that my Blackberry is sitting over here is driving me nuts because I'm away from the ability to know something instantly. Right? I want to know something. So what does God tell Moses? He tells him in verses 18 and 22, here's the whole story of what's going to happen. What kind of confidence would this give you if this is coming from God? Right? Surely a great deal of confidence, right? Surely. Not so much. Let's see what he says. Verse 18. Then they will heed your voice. Fancy old school way of saying they're going to listen. And you shall come, and you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure, this is God saying, I am sure. How many times does God say, I am sure, in the Bible? I don't know that he says it too often. He just kind of says this is going to happen, because it's just assumed that he's sure, right? I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. He's talking about Moses' hand. So I will stretch out my hand. Oh, we need a big boy hand, right? How many of you were scared of your father's hand growing up? I was, because my father's hand sometimes would reach toward this leather belt, and I had messed up at that point. We were beyond negotiations. Can, you, can I get a witness on that? Yeah. Beyond, and it was just time to get tore up. Good gracious love. So God is going to reach out his hand and do something here. And I love the Hebrew word. I will stretch out my hand and I will strike Egypt with all my wonders. Literally, this phrase means beyond your power to understand or do. I will do what you don't even understand I am going to do. It's beautiful. It's just, he's, got, he's like, I got stuff in my back pocket that you hadn't even thought about yet. And I'm going to whip it out and just smack him in the head with it. It's going to be problems for the Egyptians. Verse 21, or I'm sorry, verse 20. Which I will do in its midst, and after that he will let you go. And I will give this people favor, or grace, or elegance, or charm in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells in her house, articles of silver and gold and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and so shall you plunder the Egyptians. Cool. So not only are we going out... Baby, we're going out in style. <laughs> we're going to take their gold, and we're going to take their silver, and we're going to take their clothes. <laughs> it's like, this is awesome. We're going to march off in the desert. We're not going to know where we're going, but we're going to look good doing it. So what is God's plan? I think at this point, God's plan is relatively clear. God's plan, and I'm making a baby cry, sorry. God's plan is that Moses should lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Right? Would anybody like to disagree with that? I did my best to make it as succinct as possible that Moses should lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. Are we good with that? Because I'm going to refer back to this quite a few times later on. All right, here we go. Exodus chapter 4. Then Moses answered and said, Yes, sir, God, I'm your man. Let's go do it. Chapter 4 would be far shorter if Moses had done that. It would be far shorter. Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me. Now, what had God just finished saying? What had God just finished saying? That when you go and speak to the elders, what are the elders going to do? 
We're up here, guys. What are the elders going to do? They're going to listen. And what is Moses? The first thing out of his mouth after God tells him the whole rest of the story. He says, what if they don't listen? This is in effect saying, what if you're wrong? What if they do not believe? What if they do not believe? So suppose they do not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, what is in your hand? And I love this. I love this. This, to me, is as indicative of Jesus speaking as anything in the Old Testament. Because what does Jesus use? Whatever's in our hands. He doesn't ask us to go and get a bunch of stuff, right? He sent the 70 disciples out. Yes, there were more than 12. Don't let that shatter your world. He sent the 70 disciples out two by two, and he told them to take what's in their hands. Don't stop and pick anything up. Take what's in your hand. This is a very old concept in the Bible. A very old concept. Stuff doesn't equal ministry. Okay? Stuff doesn't equal ministry. I'm going to put it on a billboard right here. Just whoosh, right? Because so often we think, well, I don't have this or this or this or this or this, so I can't go do. Yeah, you can. What do you got in your hand? Well, I have nothing. Cool. <laughs> that works too. You don't need anything to do ministry. You just need to go. Go! That's it. What's the next verse say? So Moses said, a rod. Notice how his answers are getting shorter here. I love it. Now think about this rod for just a second. You've all seen the Ten Commandments, right? What does this rod do? Well, this rod gets turned into a snake before Pharaoh. This rod parts the Red Sea. How cool is that? What else does the rod do? It would be raised over battle while the Israelites were in battle. And it would ultimately call, in Exodus chapter 4, later on, the rod of God. She's like, I mean, you know, some Baptist preacher snuck that in there somewhere on the translation, I'm sure. The rod of God. This is what this thing is going to be known as. What's that? Yeah, it ends up in the ark too, right? Kind of a big deal. In verse 3, and God said, cast it on the ground. So I'm going to use what is in your hand. It's a critical, critical thing. So Moses cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. Ah! You didn't see that coming, did you? You're like, where do snakes come into the story? This is not cool, God, right? So Moses fled from it. Barefoot, takes out across the desert. Here we go. I love it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and tell Yeah, 80-year-old man. Reaching, uh, that's right. No, thank you for that. That was good. Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Now, how many of y'all have been around snakes? Y'all have been around snakes? I grew up in a county in Tennessee that had a lot of snakes. Had a road called Rattlesnake Lodge Road. And that teed into, Josh, where you at? Lower Rattlesnake Lodge Road, right? Yeah, a lot of snakes. You did not, it is not good. It was just not good. I worked for the water company when I was in high school. Some of you heard me tell this story. Just beg me to tell it again. We were doing a repair on, La, on La Rattlesnake Lodge Road one day, down in a ditch. We dug out a ditch, right? Dig down to the water line. We're fixing the water line. And there were three guys standing on the outside of the hole with shovels. And their job was to kill snakes. Because if a snake got in the hole, that's bad. 
<laughs> That's real bad. Takes a long time to get out of the hole. The hole's about six foot eight, eight foot deep. This is not good. Hmm. Okay. We'll finish the job. Everything's done. It's about 12 o'clock. What do snakes like to do? Sun themselves. Where do they like to do it? In the middle of the road. So we're out in the middle of the road, putting all our tools back up, and all these baby snakes, baby rattlesnakes. So I took my shovel. Yes, I did. <laughs> and, I, and I got all but one of them. And one of them I wanted to mess with because I just didn't know any better. And I put my heel of my boot, my work boot, on the tail of that snake. Now, the little snake was only this long, so don't worry. Heel of my, and you know what that snake did? He started striking my boot just over and over and over and over again. You know the dumbest place to catch a snake? By the tail. You know why? Because his head can do anything he wants to. It's very bad for you. Do not. There are some places in the Bible that should not be used for practical application of life. This is one. Don't go picking up no snake by the tail, please. My grammar gets really bad when I start talking about shovel, doesn't it? It's awesome. I just noticed that, yeah. <laughs> then the Lord said to Moses, verse 4, reach out, and take, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out of his hand and he caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. What would this do for your confidence level at this point? You know, maybe I can trust this guy. Maybe. Verse 5. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. See, this sign of the serpent showed that God could defeat the enemies of Moses. When it looks really, really bad, and I ask you to do something that doesn't make any sense at all, obey. Just obey. He's building a pattern of obedience. You know how you learn to be obedient? You give people opportunities to be obedient, and then you practice it. You, know, you want to learn how to be patient? God gives you opportunities to not be patient. And then you are patient, and then you build up a pattern of patience. That's how this works. God develops character in us by giving us opportunities to do the opposite, and then we build up the character that he wants. And it's... I can't say that in Sunday school. It's not a nice way to do it, but it works. It really does, and that's what he's going for. Verse 6, furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. Shirt. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he came out, and behold, it was leprous like snow. Leprosy was bad. There was absolutely no cure whatsoever for it at this point in time. Today, if you get leprosy, you know what they do for you? They give you antibiotics. For like three years, I kid you not, it's like a three-year package of antibiotics. And at the end of the three years, you still have some jacked-up hands, but the leprosy is gone. It can be cured. Here, you died. <laughs> Pulls it out, got a leprous hand. So he's standing barefoot in the desert, talking to a bush. <laughs> he's just picked up a snake by the tail, and he's got leprosy on his hand. I want to cut him just a little bit of slack here, okay? Just a little bit. And God said, verse 7, put your, hand, uh, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. You know, God can take what we think is ultimately polluted, and he can fix that too, right? He can take things that are so messed up that we have absolutely no solution for and go, okay, 
I got that. Because that's what he does. And he does it really well. Verse 8, Then it will be if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first son, that they may believe the message of the latter son. Verse 9, And it shall be if they do not believe these two sons, or listen to your voice. You see how God is just rapid-fire response here to all of Moses' objections. That you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. The water, or that which you take from the river, will become blood on the dry land. Now, would this mess with your head? Walk over to the river, scoop up some water. How you doing? Got the water, come over here, pour it on the dry land, and blood comes out. Yeah. If you're reading a book, this literary technique is called foreshadowing. Because this crap happens. <laughs> to the Egyptians. Dave Barber's going to talk about that next week. Crazy, crazy stuff. Verse 10, Then Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent. Neither, there's no yes sir yet, is there? I mean, come on, man. I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow or heavy or difficult or burdensome of speech and slow of tongue. So his fourth objection is, I am a poor speaker. He just doesn't get it, does he? Doesn't get it, not yet. I am a poor speaker. So the Lord said to him, and you have flashbacks to Job here for just a second. Who has made man's mouth, or who makes the mute, who makes the deaf, who makes the sing, who makes the blind? Have not I the Lord? Bam, 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 bam. Don't insult God's creation now. Don't you tell him he can't use something that he made. This is not a good idea. Verse 12, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and will teach you what to say. That's kind of cool. I had a, a freshman uh, speech teacher when I was in college. And, uh, I had a habit, you know, you give speeches when you're in speech class, right? And I'd have a habit of getting up, all right, y'all, let's get started. And then I'd give my speech. And she had one sentence of commentary after my first speech. And I thought, that's pretty good, one sentence, that's not bad. Stop saying, all right, y'all, let's get started. <laughs> I walked up to her and said, how would you like me to get them to shut up? because I have found this to be very effective in Sunday school with 9, 10, and 11-year-olds. <laughs> what do you propose? And she gave me a couple other options, which was good. But I cannot imagine having God as my speech teacher. That's pretty good. He's going to do whatever he needs to do, make it all work. Awesome. You think Moses is going to be happy? <sighs> He's killing me. But he said, but he said, Oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. I do not want to do it. And we finally get to the heart of the issue, right? And this is kind of like arguing with your kid. You've argued with your kid before, and the kid shows this great, grand, well-developed first point. The kid ain't thought about the second or third point yet, right? He's making the second or third are kind of making it up as you go. And finally, you get to the point of, I just don't want to do it. Now, Moses is honest. And he says, I'm just not willing. Verse 14, so when does God get angry? In verse 14. So the anger or the nostrils of the Lord were kindled against Moses. And he said, is not Aaron, whose name means light bringer, the Levite, which means joined to your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him, 
and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. So whenever we see these great stories of Moses preaching to the people later on in Exodus, it's really Aaron. It's really Aaron. God told Moses what to say. Moses whispered in Aaron's ear, and then Aaron was eloquent. And there's, there's some incredibly, incredibly sad things here. I think Moses missed out on a golden opportunity, pun intended, to share directly with the people what God had shared directly with him. And here's the really sad thing. I want to read it and make sure I get it right. I wonder what Aaron was supposed to do that he could not do because he had to perform Moses' ministry. And that to me is the really sad part of this story is that I don't know what God had in store for Aaron. I really don't. But that all changed because Moses abdicated his ministry. And praise God for the Aaron that stepped up with a glad heart to go and do. I mean, that was fantastic, right? I mean, that's, that's incredibly commendable. But if you think about how the story ends, was Aaron ultimately a positive or negative influence in Moses' life? I, I would say strongly negative. There were several things. Uh, you know when the children of Israel made the golden calf and worshipped around it? You know who physically built it? Aaron. You know who rallied the children of Israel together to worship it? Aaron. Okay. You know whose sons blasphemed God with impure offerings? Aaron. You know who rallied a rebellion of all the children of Israel against Moses later on in his life? Aaron. This is a self-inflicted wound. Moses didn't want to go. And God brought somebody who was willing to help, but who ultimately could not do the ministry like God wanted Moses to do the ministry. Does this make sense? You check with me? Okay. Verse 17. And you shall take this rod in your hand, with which you shall do the signs. Which is about as good a segue into next week as I can possibly imagine, because this rod does some crazy stuff. You do not want to miss this. So, what's the point of this lesson? One, God will talk to me in unexpected places if you don't believe it. We need to open our ears because he's always talking. Two, God wants to use me to do what he has called me to do. Because God will take my empty hands or my hand with an iPad, either one, and he will let me do what I am called to do. Number three, God will use, sometimes will use someone else if I refuse to do what God has called me to do. Sometimes he will. Sometimes he won't. Sometimes the job will just be undone. But sometimes he will. So what do I do with that? We'll always be ready. Serve him where he calls. And if you don't know where he's calling, Daryl probably knows what you're calling is, so just check with him. And then number three, the thing that I don't want to skip over is serve with a glad heart when someone else abdicates their service. Because it happens all the time. I guarantee you, somebody in church life in ministry is going to let you down. I guarantee you, probably most of you have already had somebody let you down. I guarantee you it will continue to happen throughout the rest of your life. You know why? Because we're sinners. That's what we do. We mess up. But when somebody falls, we're going to help pick them up. And we're going to do the work that God has called us to do. Amen?